The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. This is Volume 1, The Prehistoric World. Episode 2, Australopithecines. East Africa, three million years ago, Australopithecines are alive. They are not just one animal, but many different species. One thing they have in common, like modern humans, they are bipedal, which means that they would only use their two hind legs for walking, just like us. However, their brains are substantially smaller than modern humans, about a third of the size. It has been assumed for many years that humans were the first tool makers, and there are no humans around during this period. There are only these animals that may be the ancestors of modern humans. Therefore, we can assume that the Australopithecines did not make tools. But... We will come back to that later. So how do we know that they were alive? The Laetoli Footprints We are now going to tell the story of an incredible footprint discovery that gives us some clues about the Australopithecines. But first, let's tell the story of the woman who discovered them. Mary Nicholl was born in London, United Kingdom, in 1913. Mary did not have the best time at school, getting expelled on more than one occasion. She didn't achieve the qualifications that she maybe should have done. On one occasion, she was apparently expelled for causing an explosion in the chemistry laboratory. Her passion was for archaeology, but she was not able to study it at university due to her lack of academic qualification. This did not stop her from attending local lectures on archaeology and volunteering her services to archaeological digs, where her talent for illustrating artefacts was noticed. It was through this work that she was invited to other archaeological digs, and through this, she would meet her future husband, Lewis Leakey, a Kenyan archaeologist. Together, Lewis and Mary travelled backwards and forwards from the UK and Africa while starting a family and pursuing their passion for paleoanthropology. Paleoanthropology is specifically the name for the study of research mainly through archaeology in relation to the evolution of human beings. After Lewis's death in 1972, Mary continued to work at an archaeological site in Laetoli, Tanzania. It was in 1976, while at Laetoli, that one of the members of Mary Leakey's team, Andrew Hill, 
was involved in an elephant dung fight with another member of the team. It was during this fight that Andrew stumbled across a trail of extremely significant footprints. The footprints were old, preserved in volcanic ash, which was originally subjected to rainfall, thus creating a cement-like substance. They were able to measure the age of the ash by measuring the amount of potassium in the ash. Over time, the potassium decays and turns into argon. And because we know how quickly this occurs, we are able to determine how old the ash is. This process is called radiometric dating, and in this case, it was determined that the ash had to be around 3.6 million years old. Alongside the tracks of other animals such as antelope, rhino, guinea fowl and monkeys were another strange set of footprints. So what of these extremely significant 3.6 million year old footprints? In short, they demonstrated many similarities to modern human footprints, even though they were clearly distinct. The most important thing was that whoever created these footprints were obviously bipedal, meaning they walked on two legs. If you think about the way that a human walks, when you plant your foot down on the ground, you do so with your heel. This is called a heel strike, and when walking in cement, it will make a notable impact. The weight is then transferred to the front of the foot as your body moves forward. Finally, as the pressure transfers to the front of the foot, you push your body weight forward by pushing back on your toes, particularly your big toe, as you lift your foot. This is called a toe-off. Everything described is typical of modern human footprints, but it was also demonstrated in these what have come to be known as the Laetoli footprints. The heel strike, the transfer of the weight to the front of the foot, and the toe-off. So we know that these prehistoric footprints were made by something that was very human-like in the way that it walked. But exactly who did they belong to? Lucy! We are now going to look at another discovery made a couple of years earlier that relate to these footprints. Roughly two years previous to the discovery of the Laetoli footprints, various archaeologists were invited to a site in the Afar Triangle, a small region near the Horn of Africa which has already been recognised as being rich in archaeological opportunity. Mary Leakey was one of those archaeologists, but the most famous discovery was made by a man called Donald Johansson. Johansson was born in Chicago, Illinois in 1943. Unlike Mary Leakey, Johansson prospered in his education, earning a bachelor's degree, a master's degree and a PhD, becoming a professor 
of anthropology. Anthropology is the general study of humans and human behaviour both past and present. Johansson was working in the Afar region of Ethiopia, which is part of the Afar Triangle. The region is known for being one of the hottest and driest places on earth, with a distinct lack of air circulation that makes working in this region tough. Most accounts of the day of discovery refer to it being a long, hot day, and that Johansson, accompanied by his colleague Tom Gray, went exploring in a gully, purely on a bit of a whim. Johansson spotted a fossilised bone in the gully and investigated further. Upon discovering this bone, Johansson continued to spot other nearby bones. Johansson recognised that these bones were significant. With his expertise, he quickly established that these bones had to belong to a human ancestor and that he could be onto something much more complete than any previous discovery of human ancestor fossils. Johansson and his team celebrated the find in the evening with drinking, dancing and music. Particularly, the song Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds by the Beatles was played and the team borrowed the name from the song to give a name to their new fossilised friend. Further excavation over the coming days revealed more and more bones and none of them were the same type of bone which strongly suggested that Lucy was indeed an individual. The team managed to find about 40% of the original skeleton. This was absolutely nothing like the very limited discoveries made in years gone by. It was a defining moment in the history of paleoanthropology. One of the next steps was putting a date on when Lucy was alive, and this was not quite as easy as it would have been for dating the late early footprints, as it was not possible to date the fossilised bones themselves. Instead, the deposits around which Lucy was discovered contained ancient volcanic ash layers which could be dated using another form of radiometric dating called argon-argon dating, which only required a fragment of the rock to discover how much argon-40 had decayed to form argon-39. Using this form of radiometric dating, Lucy was discovered to be around 3.18 million years old. So when the Laetoli footprints were discovered around two years later, the footprints were established to be older than Lucy. But they were discovered to be from the same Megaranus, which is a period of one million years. So Lucy was determined to be 3.18 million years old and that is roughly 400,000 years after the Laetoli footprints had been made. Australopithecus afarensis So let's find out what exactly Lucy is. Donald Johansson used the bones that he had acquired to assemble a skeleton 
admittedly, he had to fill in the blanks, but he had enough of the skeleton to be able to make some assumptions about the 3.18 million year old animal. It was obviously bipedal due to the shape of the bones and the way that the bones fitted together. This alone suggested that Lucy was ancestral, at least closely related to the ancestral line of modern humans. However, her face was very ape-like, with a projecting lower jaw, and a flat nose and a small brain case that is about the third of the size of modern humans. She was only three foot six inches tall, and she had arms that were very ape-like, in that she had very long cubits, which is the lower half of the arm, and long adaptable fingers and thumbs, which gave her the ability to manoeuvre around in trees with ease. She was clearly not a human animal. Johansson categorised her as Australopithecus afarensis. Australopithecus had been used to describe another earlier discovered animal, and Afarensis was used to refer to the Afar region in which he had been discovered. The late early footprints have been categorised as footprints made by the Australopithecus Afarensis too. However, as you get experts who support the idea of these things, there are still to this day experts who argue against it. After all, how can you truly tell with definitive confidence that a set of footprints would have been made by an Australopithecus afarensis? All we can do is take an educated guess based on all the evidence. So, Lucy is an Australopithecus afarensis, and the Laetoli footprints are recorded to have been made by Australopithecus afarensis. Tung Child So if the name Australopithecus was not invented to describe Lucy, where did it come from? To tell that story, we need to leave the 1970s and go back to the 1920s, when a completely different discovery was made. Let us now introduce an anthropologist called Raymond Dart. He was born in Brisbane in Queensland, Australia, in 1893. Dart, like Johansson some years later, was also very successful academically in his younger years, gaining expertise in anatomy, zoology and geology. He studied at the University of Queensland. The university itself was a newly established university, with Dart becoming one of its first graduates. He earned a Bachelor of Science and a Master of Science while in his 20s. After travelling to the UK and the USA, he would finally take a position as a Professor of Anatomy at the University of the Witwatersrand, Johannesburg, in South Africa. The university is colloquially known as WITS. It was during his time in South Africa that Dart was given access to some of the fossilised bones that had been discovered from a nearby limestone quarry which was being blasted regularly. The quarry was near a small village called Tung. 
One particular set of fossils were believed to have been of anthropological significance and Dart was the man best positioned to make sense of them. What Dart discovered in the crates delivered to him ultimately revolutionised paleoanthropology. Not only was there a fossilised skull of an individual but also the corresponding fossilised endocast. Now, what is an endocast? Well, imagine that you have a skull in your hand, particularly the brain case. Now let's suppose that we fill that brain case with liquid silicon rubber and allow the rubber to set. Now, if we break open the brain case, we should be left with a solid object that looks like a brain. This is an endocast and can naturally occur during fossilisation of skulls. In the case of Raymond Dart's discovery, the endocast for the fossilised skull existed and he knew this because he married the endocast up to the skull and it was a perfect fit. Dart's next job was to clean the skull of sedimentary material so that he could fully examine it. What he discovered was that it was the skull of an infant ape. He named the skull Tong Child after the village where it was discovered and the fact that the skull belonged to an infant. Dart studied the skull and compared it to other skulls of modern chimpanzees and gorillas and subsequently determined that it was intermediate to modern apes and modern humans. A viable candidate for the highly sought missing link between prehistoric apes and modern humans. Raymond Dart published a paper in the famous British journal called Nature claiming that this was a new species called Australopithecus africanus, which means the southern ape from Africa. Therefore, when Lucy was called Australopithecus offarensis over 50 years later, she was the southern ape from Offar. So now we have established two species of Australopithecus, which are both a part of the Australopithecine subtribe. Physical Characteristics So we have spent the first half of the podcast looking at some of the major Australopithecine discoveries of the last 100 years. But what of the animals themselves? What did they look like and what did they do? Well, we've already mentioned on a number of occasions that they were bipedal. We can see this from the fossilised bones. The angle of the pelvis clearly resembles humans, as opposed to the notably different gorillas and chimpanzees. The skulls demonstrated that the spinal column entered at an angle nearer the base of the skull, as opposed to the back of the skull, showing that the head was carried at an angle which would only make sense if the living body was, to some degree, upright. However, everything else was apparently very ape-like. Long arms suitable for arboreal locomotion demonstrated that tree dwelling was very commonplace and most likely necessary to avoid predation from Africa's diverse and dangerous wildlife. They still had large jaws and teeth compared to modern humans and the brain case was very small much more like a modern chimpanzee. 
So if we are to assume that the Australopithecines are ancestral to modern humans, then the bipedal adaption was something that occurred before we became extremely intelligent and before we became expert toolmakers. Sexual Dimorphism What is sexual dimorphism? Well, the best way to describe this is to look at the fauna of the modern world. Certainly, one of the most common examples of sexual dimorphism is in the mallard duck. We see the familiar-looking male with its bottle green neck and head and its yellow beak, alongside the female, which is a mottled brown colour. I would be forgiven for suggesting that the male bird is generally looked upon as the more attractive-looking of the two sexes. Another fine example is the Indian peafowl. The peacock, we all know to have that wonderful plumage of the long decorated train of feathers, but this is only to be found on the male bird, whereas the female peahen simply has the more practical dark brown, modestly sized plumage that you would be forgiven for forgetting about. In a great many of the world's animal species, sexual dimorphism is notable, with the male displaying physical characteristics so different to its female counterpart that you would be forgiven for thinking that they were completely different species from one another. In anthropology, one of the most debated aspects of this dimorphism is the size of the female compared to the male. To investigate this, scientists look at the sexual body size dimorphism of modern apes compared to modern humans. As a rough percentage, the human male is on average 15% larger than the human female. In our closest common extant, that is living, relative, the chimpanzee, the male is around 33% larger than the female. So there is a significant difference. In our next closest relations, the male lowland gorilla is a whopping 140% larger than the female, and the male orangutan is around 120% larger than the female. So this alone suggests that sexual body size dimorphism is something that is slowly disappearing in humans. The question is, is this an evolutionary reduction that has been happening throughout hominin evolution? Was sexual body size dimorphism higher amongst the Australopithecines? The true answer is that nobody is really sure. The fossil record is not extensive enough to give us any categorical answers. Fossils can be used to demonstrate a scientific theory but these theories are very debatable. With everything that we have discussed, it would make sense on a basic level to say that sexual body size dimorphism is becoming less and less as humans continue evolving, but this is a very dangerous assumption, as the sexual body size dimorphism in other extant great apes is also put down to a number of reasons that are specific to each animal's growth rate habitat and diet, and then further to this, where the males of a species have to compete for female mates. 
So the results are quite conclusive as a consequence due to a lack of evidence and the fact that this particular aspect can be subject to a great number of different factors. So there is an argument for it, but it is contentious. We have not gathered enough evidence of Australopithecus fossils to determine how much sexual dimorphism there was in comparison to other hominin species. Why were Australopithecines bipedal? So let us investigate more deeply this hominin phenomenon of bipedalism, the ability of hominins to walk on just their hind legs. It is important to recognise that recent discoveries of animals that are possibly ancestral to the Australopithecines also show evidence of bipedal locomotion. Australopithecines generally show relatively little evidence of tool use, but they do show encephalisation, which is the evolutionary increase in brain size, and very long lower arms, which are typical of brachiation that is the ability to swing through the trees. So bipedalism is something that developed millions of years previous to many other things that we consider to be an aspect of us becoming human beings, including encephalisation. Encephalisation did not lead to bipedalism. As ever, with any question that has an unknown answer, there will be a large number of experts with a number of different explanations, but to be fair, the most generally believable reasons, which reappear whenever you read the work of experts and reporters of this work, are as follows. If we assume that the most likely home of our evolution since around 7 million years ago was Africa, then we have to recognise that the general climate and geography of Africa has undergone substantial change and that the apes who inhabited Africa had to undergo substantial change in order to survive. In short, Africa used to be covered in rainforest. The deserts did not exist. As rainforests disappear, then they will likely become grasslands before becoming desert. Trees will still exist in these grasslands, but not in the type of abundance found in rainforests. For a tree-dwelling ape to be able to find vegetative food in rainforest conditions, it can brachiate among the trees without any need whatsoever to go down to the ground. However, when the rainforests start to disappear, the food opportunities diminish. Unless that animal is prepared to use the ground, to reach the next group of trees. Therefore, not only would the animal be required to move along the ground efficiently to avoid predation, but also would need to be able to carry the food across this distance as well. The apes that would survive this challenge would most likely be those with bipedal skill for two main reasons. Firstly, because moving across the ground on two legs as opposed to four legs uses less energy. Secondly, having the freedom of the hands enables the ape to carry food back to its family. Like I say, this is a theory and only a theory, but there does seem to be a mainstream feeling 
towards this set of pressures encouraging bipedalism among prehistoric apes and therefore a likely development in human ancestors even before the existence of Australopithecines. More information about the bipedalism of older hominins can be found in the introductory podcast. Other Discoveries Let us discuss some of the other Australopithecine species that were around. Mainly, our discussions have been around the work of Raymond Dart, Mary Leakey and Donald Johansson between the 1920s and the 1970s. These were undoubtedly the landmark discoveries that opened up the whole Australopithecine theory and study. Many other fossils which date to this period in history and display the very traits that must link it closely to the ancestral line of human beings have been discovered. Categorising them has been a contentious issue. Some animals were originally thought of as being too different from the existing Australopithecines and have had their genus changed from Australopithecus to Paranthropus. However, they are still classed as Australopithecines. The fundamental difference between Australopithecus and Paranthropus is that Paranthropus has a much more robust skull and dental setup. The Paranthropus is therefore called a robust Australopithecine, and the Australopithecus is called the gracile Australopithecine. Another genus that was named in the 1990s was Ardipithecus. However, Ardipithecus fossils date back to around 5 million years ago and are noted for being much more chimpanzee-like. Some will categorise this animal with the Australopithecines, but debate exists as to whether Ardipithecus is ancestral to Australopithecus or not. One thing we do know for certain is that all of these animals must have links to human ancestry. It is not possible to say which ones, if any, are our direct ancestor, but they are all a fundamental part of the story of human evolution. So if we include the older Ardipithecus with Australopithecus and the more recently extinct Paranthropus as all the genera that are part of the Australopithecine subtribe, then the Australopithecines are believed to have been around from around 5.6 million years ago right through to around 1.2 million years ago. The Mystery of Tools Traditionally, we think of the first tool users as human. Australopithecines with their ape-like hands have not traditionally been associated with tool use. Certainly, there was little evidence to support the fact that they had used tools. However, in 2010, in the lower Awash Valley of Ethiopia, some animal bones were discovered with cut marks on them. The animal bones were dated at around 3.4 million years old. If this was genuine, then it demonstrated that stone tools must have been manufactured and used 
before humans existed. In the time of the Australopithecines and in the time of Lucy. Such cut marks on animal bones would demonstrate a deliberate carving of meat from the bone with a deliberately manufactured stone tool built specifically for this purpose. However, as much as those who discovered them would want this to be a new revelation, just a few years later it was strongly suggested that these cut marks could feasibly have been created by crocodile bites. In 2015, yet another discovery was made. This time, it was in neighbouring Kenya. It wasn't cut marks on bones, but the actual tools themselves. They were 3.3 million years old, and so once again, before humans. Authenticity of such objects has been argued by demonstrating that modern chimpanzees do actually have the intelligence to create tools. So if they can, then why would Australopithecines not? Next time, we will be looking at the first humans and those first toolmakers for which we have substantial evidence for. Thanks for listening to this episode of the History of the World podcast. The second episode, we cover the topic of the Australopithecines. Next week, we'll be looking at the first human animal on our radar, which is Homo habilis. Now, if you've just discovered this podcast, it might be worth mentioning that there is a website for the podcast. It's called historyoftheworldpodcast.com. And you can access maps which accompany the episodes that you're listening to. So if you want to create a visual image of where these discoveries have been made, you can go along, click on the relevant map. If you go to the Volume 1 directory, you'll find them all in there and you can see where these discoveries have been made on the African continent. Now then, this is a re-recording of the original episode. So this re-recording was made in the year 2020. The original broadcast was in 2018, so we just need to let you know that the podcast has flourished since this original broadcast. There are so many different podcasts covering so many different areas of history, ancient, prehistoric and classical now. And uh, if you want to take part in the forums, in the interactive sections of the podcast, Facebook, Twitter, then come along and join us. Just visit us at historyoftheworldpodcast.com and join in with everyone else. Well, thank you for listening to this episode. The next episode, Volume 3, as I mentioned, is Homo Habilis, and we'll look forward to meeting you for that one. The History of the World Podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.